This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching from the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're nearing the end of chapter 26. Matthew is describing the last few hours before the crucifixion. After Jesus was arrested, he endured a series of trials, some before Jewish authorities and some before the Romans. The Jewish trial we learn about today was especially tragic. These men knew the law concerning trials. They knew the rules that were set up to protect the innocent and punish the guilty. And they knew the prophecies concerning the Messiah. They claimed to be looking for the Messiah. And yet, they skipped over the rules, bypassed justice, and rushed headlong to condemn Jesus to the cross. They will be called to account for this one day, but believers are the beneficiaries of God's sovereign grace and his permitting this to occur. Let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Find your places in the Bible in Matthew 26, verses 57 through 68. We are continuing our study of the Gospel of Matthew verse by verse. We are in the Passion narrative, and we arrived at the Jewish phase of the trial of Jesus. Remember, there's a Jewish trial and a Roman trial. Today we're going to talk about the first one, the Jewish trial. And if you have your Bibles with you, let's follow along here. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent And the high priest said to them, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spat on his face and beat him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you. Okay, a lot to unpack here, church. Just like we did last week, there are a couple of principles I want us to keep in mind that are very evident from the passage here in order for us to understand this corrupt mock and circus, really, trial of Jesus here. The sovereignty of God. He retains full control Even of this corrupt trial, the obedience of Jesus, he's obeying God the Father who has already predetermined from the foundation of the world that Jesus will go to the cross. And the reliability of scripture, because everything here was prophesied beforehand, and obviously the sinfulness of man here because we see violation upon violation here of local laws, Jewish laws, and obviously the laws of God here. So last week we talked about the audacity of the foe, the anger of the follower, and the abandonment of the friend. Today we're going to finish that entire section with the arraignment, the accusation, and the abuse. Okay, that's how this trial is divided. But let's look at the arraignment, verses 57 through 
64. And we will draw all the lessons that Scripture gives us here. Now, Matthew only records the second part of the Jewish trial. Before taking Christ to Caiaphas' house here, the arresting mob took him to a preliminary hearing. That's the first part. Now, when this unjust hearing failed to produce an indictment, see, Annas was supposed to bring an indictment, but when he failed to do that, he said, well, take him to Caiaphas. So Matthew then picks up the narrative from there, from the second part of the, after the preliminary hearing. And I want you to see that there are three aspects of this Jewish trial at Caiaphas' house here. First of all, it was an illegal proceeding, according to verse 57 through 58, an illegal proceeding. For example, Jesus' arrest was prompted by bribery instead of a warrant. Did you notice that these guys had no warrant to arrest Jesus? Everything was prompted when Judah said, well, what are you going to give me to betray him? So that's what prompted the arrest, and that's, that was illegal, of course, bribery involved. Secondly, the chief priests and the elders, the people of the Sanhedrin, had to manipulate Roman leadership into thinking that Jesus presented a threat to the state. Otherwise, they could not have involved the Romans. The only reason they could get a Roman cohort to be a part of the arresting mob that took Jesus to the house of Annas was to tell the Romans, like, this guy is going to create an insurrection here, and therefore he's a threat to the state. Obviously, this was a lie. This was not Jesus' motivation from the beginning. So that's the second violation of the law. And by the way, obviously, they would have to take him to the Roman court because the Jews were not allowed to condemn anyone to death by crucifixion. So they had to involve the Romans, which is another violation of the law. This is double jeopardy on steroids. Thirdly, the Mishnah, which was the codified oral traditions of the Jews, prohibited arrests that led to the death penalty to be conducted at night. They did it at night because they wanted to avoid a riot. They knew what they were doing was wrong. And that is why Jesus says in verse 55, Why are you here to arrest me like you're arresting a robber? And obviously, fourthly here, the Sanhedrin failed to produce an indictment, a formal charge, and they failed to produce or to provide to Jesus a defense counsel. That was another violation of his human rights, uh, of the violation of the law, especially if you're going to condemn a man to death. Now, any decent judge at this point would have declared this a mistrial and released the suspect. But again, remember, God is in control. Man is not in control here. And he permitted all of these irregularities as an indictment against the man who tried Jesus. Ironically, think about this. These guys are trying Jesus. They are condemning him and putting him on trial. But in reality, they are going to have to stand trial one day. In fact, the day is coming when they will have to stand trial before the very one they condemned to death. Talk about a reversal of fortune here. That Bible describes that event as the great white throne judgment, according to Revelation 20, verse 11, that every unbeliever that has ever existed will have to stand before the holy God and give an account for their unbelief. And not only that, to give an account for their evil that they have committed. They will have to pay for eternity and it will never be enough for them having violated the holiness of God. And these guys are going to be a part of that, along with every unbeliever. They'll be resurrected in order to stand trial before God. And here's a reminder that Jesus gave to Pilate, according to Luke chapter 19, verse 11. He said to Pilate, He who delivered me to you has the greater sin. In other words, these folks that delivered Jesus to the Roman trial to be condemned by Pontius Pilate will have to answer to God, and they have the greater sin. Let's look at the second aspect of this circus trial here. Not only was this an illegal proceeding, it had an illegitimate prosecution, according to verses 59 through 62. Now, 
I want you to see here that the Sanhedrin overstepped their authority big time by playing the role of prosecutors. They were not supposed to do that. If you're going to preside over a trial, you're not supposed to be the prosecutor. Their law determined that. It only allowed them to investigate a case. They were supposed to investigate the case, but not to prosecute cases. And in their case, they did investigate. But as Matthew tells us here, they fabricated evidence. Can you think of anything more corrupt than that? They fabricated evidence. In fact, they did a lousy job doing that. Because Matthew tells us they couldn't get two people to even lie about Jesus Christ. Then after several unsuccessful attempts to gather credible testimonies, they brought witnesses without cross-examining them. That's another violation. And check this out. The two witnesses referred to the occasion when Jesus cleansed the temple for the first time. And according to them, they're saying that Jesus threatened to destroy the temple. The question is, is that what Jesus said? No. Look at John 2 verse 19. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. You see, he's saying, if you destroy it, I will raise it up. So obviously, Jesus wasn't talking about the temple, because later on, he confirmed that that was an illustration. This was analogous to his body, to his resurrection. Any non-corrupt judge would have allowed for more witnesses to testify to the defense, to say, wait a minute, that's not what he said. We heard it. Many people were around in that event there, and... Some people could have easily confirmed Jesus' actual words. And in fact, by the time of the arrest of Christ, his enemies here knew that his rebuilding of the temple was analogous to the resurrection. So it's not that they didn't know. They knew it. They were suppressing evidence. They were suppressing the truth. And the reason we know that is because the same guys later, after the death of Christ, went to Pilate and said, according to Matthew 27, verses 63 to 64, they said this to Pilate, Sir... We remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and then the last deception will be worse than the first. See, they knew that Jesus Christ was never talking about the temple, but his own resurrection. But here's the lesson. Twisting words to get someone into trouble is a wicked technique. It's a resource that we use from time to time, even those of us who are believers in Christ. Unfortunately and sadly, we do this all the time, sometimes subconsciously. We do it on social media. We do it with the politicians we don't like. We twist words in order to make the other person sound like a criminal or sound like a demon. So we demonize our opponents. We do this all the time. Unfortunately, believers do that. We fall into that temptation. Obviously, we don't have a corner on that market. Unbelievers do it all the time, and they don't care. Every time, church, we misrepresent someone, we follow the sinful pattern of these guys. Scripture commands us. It's not a suggestion. It's a command to not bear false witness against our neighbor. Exodus 20, verse 16. Do you see how important it is, church, for us to kill any rumors or to not even hear any unsubstantiated reports? I know that piece of gossip is juicy. I know you want to hear about it. I know you want to be in the know. I, I, I face the same temptation. But the reality is we are not to bear false witness against our neighbor. I don't even want to hear of potentially false witness against my neighbor. And that is the reason, church, all of you who know me well enough know that I will not hear anything about a brother in Christ without the proper procedures here, Matthew 18. I, I've, I've heard this many times before. Pastor, 
Did you hear about so and so? I interrupt them mid-sentence and say, if you haven't talked to that person yet, I don't need to know. Go to that person. I don't need to know. And especially if someone is coming to talk to me about some of my brothers and sisters in Christ who serve with me here. I don't tolerate that at all because I don't want to even give the impression that I am hearing a false testimony, a bearing false witness against a brother in Christ. I don't want you to misrepresent the truth, and I want to be tempted to misrepresent the truth. You see how important that is, church, for us to follow that? That's the technique that the opponents of Christ use against him. And I'm afraid that Satan uses the same technique to discourage us and threaten the unity of the believers. But we must be careful not to imitate these guys in a much more dangerous way. And that is, I don't want to misrepresent the words of my brother in Christ, of course, but church, we never want to misrepresent the words of Jesus. That is much more dangerous. I'll give you an example of that. The governor of California recently launched a campaign that does just that. It misrepresents the words of Jesus. He sponsored billboards across the country to quote the Bible. Imagine that. To quote the sweet words of Jesus saying, Love your neighbor as yourself from Matthew 22, verse 39 and from Mark 12, verse 31. But the purpose of those billboards were to encourage abortion. Can you think of anything more blasphemous than that? Than to quote the sweet words of Jesus to promote murder. Now, upsetting Christians should be the least of his concerns. He'll have to answer to God for his blasphemous twisting of Scripture. And if you think that 21st century governors and 1st century corrupt Sanhedrin people are the only ones that do that today, think again. They're not the only ones who attempt to pervert the words of Christ. Every time a Bible teacher doesn't take the time, church, to study the text carefully, that man is in danger of committing the same sin of misrepresenting the words of Jesus. Prosperity gospel preachers do this all the time. They promise things that Jesus never promised. They twist the words of the Bible to fit whatever they wanted to say in order to promote their agenda. And we need to be extremely careful, those of us who study the Bible, to say, is this really what the text is saying, or is this what I want it to say? Because the Bible says what it means, church, and it means what it says. And my job is to communicate to you the words of Jesus without misrepresenting the words of Christ. Whatever it takes, whatever the cost, if it costs my life or my freedom or my livelihood, God has called me to proclaim the words of Christ faithfully. And as a follower of Christ, you have been called to do the same, whether you do it from the pulpit or when you do it on the Internet or in in one-on-one conversations. The temptation is to misrepresent the words of Christ because of fear of retaliation, because of fear of not belonging to the group. But may God protect us from all of that. Surprisingly, Caiaphas allowed Jesus to speak in his own defense, which was no more than a show. It's theatrics because Christ was already presumed guilty before the whole thing started. Now, furthermore, the high priest was embarrassed by the weakness of his case and that he resorted to a desperate measure And that's the third aspect of this trial I want you to see. It's the irresponsible priest, verses 63 to 64. Now, in his frustration here, Caiaphas kept trampling on the law. And if we want to use a a modern term, we can say that he threw the Constitution out the window. Okay? He realized he couldn't condemn a man to death for merely saying something. Can you believe that? And he realized the weakness of his case. The Mishnah, for example, forbade high priests from intervening in capital cases. He wasn't even supposed to say anything. He wasn't supposed to be a part of the prosecution. He was supposed to be impartial. But this guy appealed to a convoluted version of an oath clause. Verse 63, he says, I adjure you, adjuring someone by the living God. He says, I adjure you by the living God. And this is the equivalent of a subpoena. Okay? 
So what he is, wants to do here, he wants to force Jesus to utter a self-incriminating statement, which obviously violated the law. He's trying to get Jesus to say something self-incriminating. Now, we Americans, we know all about that. We have the Fifth Amendment. We have the right to plead the Fifth. Now, that's what Caiaphas is doing. He's violating Jesus' quote-unquote right to plead the Fifth. Obviously, the Fifth Amendment didn't exist then, but the concept was there. So in the process, God exposed this corrupt, manipulative, and arrogant priest. He thought he could outsmart the Son of God. So he says, I adjure you. In other words, I command you to tell me here under oath whether or not you are the Son of God. And and, and Mark tells us that Jesus says very clearly, I am. In other words, Jesus says, I am guilty of being the Messiah. You said it yourself. He says, you testified it with your own mouth. I am guilty of being the Messiah. And Jesus said, there's something else you need to know, Caiaphas. You will have your day in court. That is what Jesus means when he says, thereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven saying, you will sit on the bench of the accused, he says. You just wait. Your day in court is on the calendar. And then when Caiaphas heard this, he went hysterical. He tore the robes. I mean, he's upping the theatrics here. He, he wants everybody to see how pious he is. Oh, you, you, have you guys heard this? I can't take this blasphemy. But I hope that if I'm ever placed under arrest for being a follower of Christ, which again, we don't think about this in the United States. We say, well, that's so beyond us. That's, that'll never happen. It, it may not have happened in, in my lifetime. But if I'm ever in a position where I'm accused of being a follower of Christ, I want to be able to say guilty as charged. That's the arraignment of the trial. Let's go through the accusation here in verses 65 to 66, the accusation. Always the performer. Caiaphas here put on a show. False piety here, Leviticus 10 verse 6, and also Leviticus 21 verse 10, specifically forbids priests of Israel from tearing their robes as an outward expression of indignation. And the reason for that, church, is that those priests were supposed to model self-control and composure. But again, this was a fake display of righteous anger. And this fabricated righteous anger here is no different from the pastor who yells on Sundays against sexual sin while flirting with the secretary during the week. Or no different from the believer who lets out a rent against the evils of our culture while he refuses to forgive his offender. Now, here's another violation of this whole circus. The Sanhedrin rushed to a verdict. Jewish law here prescribed a minimum of two days of deliberations. Minimum of two days. Again, because especially if you're talking about condemning someone to death here, they should have looked at the prophecies in those two days of deliberation. They should have looked at their Bibles and say, wait a minute, he's claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be God. Let's see if he's right. We have two days to deliberate. Let's make sure that we're not rushing into a condemnation here. For example, they would have concluded that he was born in Bethlehem, just like Micah 5 verse 2 predicted. They would have concluded that Jesus was born of a virgin, according to Isaiah 7 verse 14. They would have concluded that he was from the line of David, according to Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 2, and that he was betrayed by a friend, even, according to Psalm 41, verse 9. In other words, they had plenty of time and plenty of evidence to conclude that what Jesus is saying was correct. Evidently, this council here chose to ignore the facts and suppress the truth. What a corrupt legal team. No, every opponent of Christ, even unbelievers who are friendly to our faith, choose the same path. They suppress the truth. They fail to believe not because they don't have enough evidence. They fail to believe because they choose to do so 
Because a careful reading of the Bible will present enough evidence for the identity of Jesus. And check this out, church. If he is who he claims to be, it means that we are who he says we are. And according to that truth, humanity stands trial before a holy God, not the other way around. We don't put God on trial. God puts us on trial. The good news for those of us who are believers in Christ is that the Son of God already endured accusation of blasphemy so that we could be acquitted, those of us who believe in Him, and go free. That's the greatest gift you'll ever hear about. How someone could pass up on such a proposal here is beyond me. Jesus takes your capital punishment on your behalf and you receive his life. Here's something else he endured for you. The abuse, verses 67 to 68. The people in Anna's house here had already violated Jesus' rights by assaulting him. Now it was the turn of the folks from Caiaphas' house here. They intensify their abuse by mocking and humiliating Jesus. As we just read here, they said, well, prophesy to us. Just, Who hit you if you're a prophet? And they're thinking that they are in control of the situation. They think that they could break the Son of God. But remember, those of us who have been reading this story here know that Jesus could have summoned legions of angels. In fact, he, he doesn't have to say the word. He merely has to think, and those folks would have been destroyed. Now, people who mock the name of Jesus today confuse divine long-suffering with powerlessness. They say, well, Jesus is not doing anything. I can mock God, all I want, he's not sending fire and brimstone. I can do whatever I want. Well, they are confusing divine long-suffering, divine patience with powerlessness. They think God is powerless to exact uh, revenge. Now, if you wonder why God hasn't destroyed the world yet, consider two of his attributes functioning in perfect harmony. One of them is mercy, withholding the judgment that we deserve. The other one is omnipotence. There is nothing that God cannot do except things that will violate his nature. For example, God cannot lie. God cannot sin. God cannot contradict himself. Mercy and omnipotence functioning in perfect harmony here. Just as he created the universe with words, church, he can uncreate. He's powerful enough to say, let there be light. He's powerful enough to say, let there be light no longer. But he doesn't do that because the complete annihilation of Humanity, the complete annihilation of you and me, would be the righteous retribution for our sins. God would be perfectly just in destroying your life and my life with a simple, let they live no longer because of our sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, we are deserving of death. We don't even deserve to be on this in the earth. We don't deserve to be occupying space on God's creation because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. You see, he could simply say the word, we don't deserve to be here. Every person ever born metaphorically slapped Jesus on the face. You have done that. I have done that many times. Were it not for his grace, church, all of us would have picked up the baton from the Sanhedrin and we would have continued the abuse. So we were symbolically in that courtroom. He doesn't give us what we deserve. But he gifts us believers with what we don't deserve. So he withholds judgment from us that we deserve. And not only that, he goes a step further. He gives us what we don't deserve. Namely, the ability to live in eternal life. The fact that he gives that to you. The fact that he allows you and me to roam the earth with life in our bodies is already a demonstration of divine grace. Because we don't deserve to be here. We deserve to be in hell. All of us. According to the Bible. 
So when you look at your life from that perspective, I guarantee you, you will think twice before you complain about what you don't have. You know why? Because you don't deserve to have anything. And I don't deserve to have anything. I don't deserve to live. I don't even deserve to be here. So next time you complain about your finances, about your health, about your life, your spouse, your school, your work, consider this. You have no right to complain about anything. The only reason you are alive, my friends, is because His mercies renew each morning. That's what the Bible says in Lamentation 3, verse 23. His mercies are the cause we are not consumed, according to that same passage. But His mercies renew every morning. Now, when you look at your life from that perspective, you know, the, the perspective that says, I can think of no greater act of kindness and compassion and no clearer demonstration of meekness, the power to inflict utter righteous destruction under control and the grace to defer judgment to allow people to repent that is the reason why god is patient and long-suffering to give people time to repent when you look at your life when you look at the world with that perspective i guarantee you your heart will burst into worship and gratitude that's the kind of savior we have If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided you at no cost with the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth with Grace.